Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we welcome back the master of metabolism, Dr. Benjamin Bickman. When I see these declarations nowadays of, I believe in science, that's what people are claiming, and they're proudly claiming this. We believe in science, and you see little yard signs. In this home, we believe in science and a bunch of other platitudes. I can't help but wonder at that. What a weird thing. Never believe in science. I, I, in fact, I'm telling everyone, never believe in science. That's nonsense. And I'm a scientist. What a scientist is doing, and anyone is also doing this, everyone should be doing this, and I think most people are, a scientist is a seeker of truth, and it is the never-ending pursuit to try to prove yourself wrong. So the moment you have an individual saying, we believe in science, or a scientist saying, you should believe in the science, no, you don't say that. The only thing a scientist should be saying is, the data suggests this, for now, that's what we're going to rely on until we're proven wrong. I'm a certified functional health practitioner who's on a mission to educate 1 billion people. I've been obese for most of my life. From rock bottom to the top of the mountain, I am passionate about studying ancient healing strategies like fasting and the ketogenic diet and curating this information on the Keto Camp podcast. My goal is to bring you the thought leaders in this space. My name is Ben Azadi, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, best-selling author of four books and host of the Keto Camp podcast. I love Dr. Benjamin Bickman. He's been on the Keto Camp podcast twice before, episode 141, where we discussed his masterful book, Why We Get Sick, The Hidden Epidemic at the Root Cause of Most Chronic Diseases and How to Fight It. Also, episode 54 on foods that help lower insulin how cortisol affects the body, and the benefits of a fasted exercise. We'll drop links down below if you want to listen to those two after this one. This episode was my favorite episode with him to date because I had a whole set of questions I wanted to ask him, and the conversation was so good. We got so deep into different topics that I barely asked any of those questions, and you know what? It worked out for the better, and you're going to absolutely love this interview. We get into addiction to hate how people actually get a dopamine hit, a buzz, a high from being offended, from hating other people. And we know what, we see that more than ever. So we talk about expressing anger and hatred and frustration and why that's an addictive state and what to do about it. We get into the differences in the hippocampus of Alzheimer's brains versus controlled brains. Really fascinating study. The effect of sphingolipids in the brain, which is a mystery that is becoming solved. Super fascinating. We also get into hypertrophy versus hyperplasia, fat growth. What's the difference? We're going to talk about pinching fat and how it grows in different ways and how to understand your fat. The humble kidney. I asked Dr. Bickman the question of, out of all the years in he's done research and all the interviews he's done and just everything he's done over the years, what's been his most 
fascinating, surprising discovery, and he answered it with a kidney. And you're going to be blown away by this tissue that is in such high demand. We talk about three ways to support the kidneys after he discusses the importance of the kidneys. And then we discuss, has anybody ever died from type 2 diabetes? Hmm. Interesting question. The effect of salt on insulin sensitivity. This is going to surprise you. And much, much more. So sit back, stay present, grab a pen and paper. This is going to be one of the best episodes that you've ever listened to on any podcast. Before I bring on Dr. Bickman, I want to take a minute here to get to the Apple Podcast rating and review of the day from Robin Joe. Five-star review titled, I love all the information. Ben is a wealth of information and is putting wonderful content out into the world. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Robin Joe, for listening to the show and leaving that rating and review. Surely appreciate it. It does help the show grow and expand and reach more people. So thank you for doing that. If you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating or a review yet, please do so right now. Head over to Apple Podcasts. Just scroll down, head to the ratings and review section and leave a quick, honest rating and review. And it will be much appreciated because that's how this show grows and reaches more people out there who need this information. I also want to remind you that we are launching our seven-day Keto Kickstart Challenge, myself and the Keto Camp team. And this is taking place. It's starting on May 17th, and it's going to run all the way until May 24th. Every single day inside of your private Facebook group, we are going to go live twice a day, 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to do some training, some Q&A, some teaching, and I'm going to be bringing in some amazing resources in the keto and fasting space. And guess what? Dr. Benjamin Bickman is one of those resources. This is a free seven-day keto challenge. You will also have the opportunity to win thousands of dollars worth in keto supplements, products, gears, and even memberships to my Keto Camp Academy. If you really want to learn the principles to keto and how to achieve phenomenal results with not just keto and fasting, we're going to outline my four-pillar framework, and this is absolutely free, and all the action will take place in your private Facebook group. So if you want to get signed up for this, you could register your free spot by heading to www.ketocampchallenge.com. Camp is spelled with a K. www.ketocampchallenge.com. Register your free spot. Let's get you the information you need to apply and change your health for the better. Other speakers confirmed for this challenge are Dr. Mindy Peltz, Cynthia Thurlow, Dr. Rebecca Warren, Autumn Smith from Paleo Valley, Megan Ramos from The Fasting Method, and she works with Dr. Fung. Of course, I already mentioned it, Dr. Benjamin Bickman, Dr. Daniel Pampa, and we have some other surprises for you as well. Head to KetoCampChallenge.com, get signed up for free, and we'll see you in the challenge. All right, let's get into this amazing interview with Dr. Benjamin Bickman. Dr. Bickman studies diabetes and obesity, and much of what he focuses on is a seemingly obscure condition called insulin resistance, but it's in fact not very obscure at all. Dr. Bickman has devoted his career to studying insulin resistance and this master hormone, insulin, which is the bully of the block. Dr. Bickman's research focuses to elucidate the molecular mechanisms that mediate the disruption that causes and accompanies metabolic disorders such as obesity, type 2 diabetes, and dementia. 
driven by his academic training, PhD in bioenergetics and postdoctoral fellowship with the Duke National University of Singapore and Metabolic Disorders, he is currently exploring the different roles of insulin and ketones as critical drivers of metabolic function. He frequently publishes his research in peer-reviewed journals and presents at international science meetings. Here's Dr. Benjamin Bickman. Dr. Ben Bickman, welcome back to the Keto Camp Podcast. Hey, Ben. Yeah, always a pleasure. Good to see you. Good to see you for the third time. I'm so blessed to have you come back. Uh, I was just mentioning off air that you've been really active online. A year ago, you weren't doing that. Now you're doing Instagram, IGTVs, and Facebooks, and YouTube. So what what changed for you? Why did you decide to go online? You, actually, it was me increasingly appreciating that if I ever want to supplement my meager professor salary, it's going to have to be by building my platform. Now, that sounds a little maybe too entrepreneurial for a professor to say, but I guess the short and skinny of it is I knew I could basically make money by selling my book. That's a very selfish motive, but also too the the unselfish motive that I hope anyone listening can can now sort of I can redeem myself in their eyes by saying this. There really is a genuine desire on my part to share what I know because when you think you have answers to important questions, you want to help turn that into solutions to important problems. And the traditional scientific mechanism of sharing what we know is by publishing peer-reviewed journals or peer-reviewed articles in scientific journals. But the problem with that is no one will ever read them because people don't have access to them or they don't really speak the language of the scientist. You know, they don't, they're not familiar with that, that vernacular. And so I was increasingly raging against the limitations of science where I thought, I know something valuable how can I share this with people? And that that is the genuine selfless aspect to social media. But then about a year ago, up until that time, I would only ever just take a little snapshot of an article and then just do a little description of the relevance of that. And that had been enough to kind of slowly grow my social media, especially on Twitter. But I increasingly hate Twitter. Ben, I hope you can forgive me for saying that. I don't know that you're a Twitter guy anyway, but I don't really care for Twitter. I just don't like the environment. And I really liked the environment on Facebook and Instagram, especially. And so, but then my brother, one of my older brothers said, you know what, you can't do a little snapshot of, of this article. You got to just do a little video of it. And so that's what I started doing. And so every week I, I kind of remind myself, self, record a little video and put it up there, just kind of whatever I'm thinking about. And lately it's just been on fat cells, which is something I think a lot about, but it's always going to be some little snippet about human metabolism. And hopefully they're of interest and it seems like they are. So that's that's really my involvement on social media. There's a selfish aspect, which is there's value in growing my brand. And, and then selflessly, there's a genuine desire to share what I know because I think it's valuable. Yeah, and I believe they go hand in hand as you're educating people, they're getting to know you and like you and trust you, which grows your brand, but you also get to educate them, which is the most important thing because there's such a need for that right now. You're filling that hole right there with your research. And your brother was right. Videos, people love videos. They resonate with videos and you're doing a really good job with those videos. I'm curious. I don't really like the environment on, on Twitter as well. My assistant pretty much handles my Twitter account. So why don't you like it? What's going on on Twitter that you don't like? Yeah, it always turns into an argument. Argument, uh, I guess for lack of a way, um, anything post, uh, a significant number of individuals only want to reply to challenge whatever that may be. 
Um, so I would maybe share something and say that elevated insulin is a cause of insulin resistance. And I would back that up in human cell and rodent data. Um, but then someone says, oh, well, then there's these studies by this guy and this guy on Twitter who has a big following says this about it. And I just found it so exhausting, so exhausting. And I'm not willing, um, I'm not willing to give social media too much of my time too much of me. And basically, all I'm willing to do is share the information and then step away from it. And so people will ask questions on, say, Instagram, and I will occasionally reply to them. And so anyone listening, if you're thinking, well, Ben Bickman's never replied to me, it's just because once I start trying to sip from that hose, I, I'm drowning in it. And, and of all the demands I have on my time, academic and somewhat, you know, some modest entrepreneurial efforts, and then family and, and, and church obligations, which are the priority for me. Social media just has a very, very narrow piece. I'm, I'm only willing to give so much of my time. So Twitter team seems to demand a lot. The moment I will post something, it's immediately demanding a lot. Instagram just ten, in particular and Facebook similarly but even more Instagram just tends to be people who are just glad to get the information, um, not to generalize the whole audience of Instagram. It's just people aren't as much on there to debate and argue. They really are just grateful for the information. And uh, that suits my my view of social media and using it as a tool rather than a time waster. Yeah, use it. Don't let it use you. I love that philosophy. I do the same thing. And it's very difficult for me personally. If I start to go down that rabbit hole, it's like, oh my gosh, 30 minutes later, 60 minutes later. And we have, we're seeing a problem this day and age. You're the, you're the go-to resource when, it, when we talk about hormones, specifically insulin. Your, whole, your book, Why We Get Fat, is about insulin, this bully of the block. But what about dopamine, right? Aren't we getting this dopamine resistance with all these notifications, social media, email? What do you see going on with our dopamine receptor sites and dopamine resistance? Yeah, what a great question. So, so first of all, Ben, you mentioned the book Why We Get Fat. That's Gary Tobb's book, which is delightful. My book, my book, Why We Get Sick, actually, is very much a copy of Gary's title. But why we get sick? Because I do implicate insulin resistance at the heart of that. Um, with dopamine, there is something very addictive about about being angry. In fact, I was just sharing this with someone. Now, the degree to which someone may be becoming dopamine resistant, I actually don't know in those specific neurons. I do know, of course, of dopamine-specific problems when it comes to prolactin issues or Parkinson's. When those are very distinct regions of the brain, actually. So dopamine in one area is not the same as dopamine in another. But nevertheless, there's something wonderfully well, addictive and gratifying about being angry. And I was sharing with some, not to um, wax philosophical here, but I was just talking with a friend how Twitter to me has become, and maybe even social media, um, depending on how people use it, it has become analogous to the minute of hate. I think that's what it was called that you read about in the book 1984. In 1984, every day, people are basically shown a picture of someone they're supposed to yell at. I mean, literally yell at and curse and, and hate. And that is the focus. That is sort of the, the leadership's you know, the powers that be, this is the person they want the people to hate. And that, to me, is what social media has turned into to a degree. Now, I, I'd like to think there are those that are using it differently. But nevertheless, by and large, it has become a mechanism for many to just get angry. And I don't have time for that. 
you know, I don't want to come home uh, at the end of the day. I, I've had to change how I listen to podcasts um, because I'd found I'd find that during my brief commute home, if I were listening to a political podcast, I'd get so just frustrated that I would carry some of that home. And so I've stopped. I can't listen. I want to stay up to date and be informed, but I couldn't. I couldn't take that into my soul, so to speak, right when I was about to have to be my very best. Because when I'm with my wife and children, I need to give them my best. And that wasn't happening when I would get filled with anger or frustration and, and not hate, I hope, um, but, but feelings that would trend that way. And so I'd have to change my, change my habits and only listen to some uplifting podcast or just music. I love that you had that awareness to find out what was going on. You were bringing this into the household and you stopped. Same thing with me. You know, I found myself getting too much invested with everything that's happening with the, you know, the coronavirus and the politics and now the vaccine. So I need to step back. I want to be informed, but I don't want to get sucked into that. And you said something that really stood out to me a little while ago. You said people are addicted to feeling into the hate, like feeding into the hate, like watching the news. Why is it that we are so addicted to hate? You know, I, I do think that there are chemical changes. There is a chemical response that that stress that now I'm speaking a little I'm speaking outside my area of expertise because my expertise with hormones is the metabolic or the cardiometabolic, not uh, addiction. But there's no question there are chemical mediators to these emotions that, that we can't help but enjoy to agree as much as we may say we hate it. In the heat of the moment, there's something just satisfying. It's like we've we've sunk our teeth in and we've made the kill. You know, there's almost that animalistic instinct, that satisfaction that comes from letting someone know what you think of them and expressing your anger or hatred or frustration at them. So th there are chemicals involved, and I, I'm afraid I can't speak to what they are, but there's no question they exist, and that is a state that is addictive. So when you see a hateful comment come in towards you, whether it's Twitter or somewhere else, what is your first response? Yep, I ignore it. Once upon a time, I would respond to it. And now as my, my platform has grown, it's simply not worth responding because most of those people actually don't want an answer to what they're addressing. They don't want to be pacified. They want to be angry. And so any attempt to satisfy or to pour water on that, that fiery anger uh, won't work. And so I ignore it and I recalibrate. I remind myself, whose opinion do I really care about? And that's a very small group of people. It's, it's God and it's my family and anyone else at the end of the day, I can say to hell with you. Not that I want to. Of course, I want to be friends with people. I'm a likable guy and I enjoy social interaction. But I, in those moments, I can recalibrate and I can remind myself that this particular individual on social media truly doesn't matter. Um, and then I do my best to just shake it off. I love it. Yeah, I have a t-shirt that says no time for hate. That's exactly what you're saying because I believe that the universe states that's a universal law that what you feed energy to expands. So if we start going back to them and feeding hate back to them, we're just going to get more hate. But if we just forgive them, send them love and just continue with our day, we'll get more love and abundance. I was listening to Dr. Wayne Dyer. Are you familiar with Dr. Wayne's Dyer work at all? Mm -hmm. so 
he's passed on now, but he was a uh, psychologist and he used to talk about your thoughts and how when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And he was really paramount in me getting out of depression and suicide to more of an abundant life with his books and his work. But I was just listening to him two days ago and he was talking about what comes out of an orange is orange juice. And why is juice coming out of an orange juice? Well, that's because that's what's inside the orange. So the analogy was this, when life applies pressure to you, what comes out of you is what's inside of you. So when somebody responds to you hateful, if there's hate inside of you, that'll come out and you'll respond to that person. But if there's love and forgiveness, and like you were saying, you're just going to send that person love and go on with your way. So it really just starts with what you could create on the inside and then that manifests on the outside. Yeah, well said. That's great. That's an eloquent way of stating it. So you, things have changed since we last spoke. It was about a year ago. It was right before your book came out, Why We Get Sick, Not Why We Get Fat, although that's, they're both brilliant books. Also a great book. Right, yeah, so I apologize for that. But get mine first. <laughs> yeah. But get mine first, then get Gary's book. Definitely get your book. You were on the podcast uh, episode, what was it, 141, where we talked about your book. That was about a year ago. So buy Why We Get Sick and then add to the cart Why We Get Fat. Get both at the same time. But how have things changed for you academically with your schedule, with the shutdown? What are you up to now? What's your schedule look like now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a fun question. Glad to answer that. Um, so COVID has changed things, of course, and much of it, I would say, is terrible. I know that's a delicate topic, and so I won't get into it any further than you want us to. But I would say COVID has, of course, made some changes, many of which are disastrous. Strictly speaking, though, some of them have made things very efficient. And so as a teacher, for example, and that's about how I spend 40%, 40% of my time as a professor is intended to be teaching. Now, that is classroom teaching and laboratory teaching, or what we call mentored research, but that classifies as teaching at BYU, which is great. But my formal teaching, my classroom teaching has become much more efficient because my class is too big to meet in person. And so I had to, at the beginning of the academic year, last summer, that is, I had to create an alternate plan and, and then tell the university, this is how I'm going to do my class. I pre-recorded all of my lectures. I put all of the assignments on through this online learning portal that BYU has that they open and they close. They So everything is very exquisitely structured. And then I have office hours. In fact, right when we get off, I'll join office hours with, you know, 15 or so students that'll be similar to what we're doing now. Selfishly speaking, it has turned what was once a six-hour obligation per week for this one class because it would be four hours of teaching and two hours of office hours. It's turned it into just two hours of office hours. So I now have four extra hours per week because I basically took all of that and just put it on the student through this. It's on demand. They just go through the course as they will. Now, Ben, to guys like me and you, being able to finish an entire semester as quickly as you want, I bet we would rip through it. That's the way I'm wired. Not that I am taking over the world kind of guy, but I'm certainly motivated and ambitious enough to want to just get things done. But it is shocking to me how much I have to crack the whip. Every week I'm sending out little reminders saying, hey, there's this due date coming up. Please make sure you're And Every time a due date passes, I get a slew of emails. Not that many, but I get a handful of emails where it's just, oh, Dr. Bickman, I just missed the deadline. Now, could you please open it back up for me? And I'm just thinking, no. I'm not going to open it up for you. You've had three freaking months to get this done. 
You could have gotten it done anytime in these three months. So it's an interesting dynamic just with regards to my teaching, not all of which uh, I hate. I've enjoyed some aspects of it. Now, however, um, the, the audience may be interested in knowing we've been told at our institution to plan on totally normal instruction for the fall. And I know other universities have been told that as well. So I think that's the right approach, frankly. Now, nevertheless, I'm going to attempt to keep some aspects of what I have been doing with some pre-recorded as a bit of a hybrid. So I'm gonna do a bit of a hybrid version. I still wanna have in-person interaction with the students. I'm just gonna find a new way to do it. Now, with regards to my research, the biggest change over the last year has been this manuscript that we just published which was really cool. We had samples that we could get from the hippocampus, the learning memory center of the brain, human samples. And so these were donors, uh, you know, tissue donors of, of, of humans, people who had died with Alzheimer's disease, people who had died without. And we did a massive screening of gene expression, genes involved in glucose metabolism, and compared that with genes involved in ketone metabolism, the two main fuels of the brain. And then we, of course, compared this between the Alzheimer's brains and the normal control brains. And every gene, in the, and so in the, the hippocampus, the learning center, has four main cell types. Let's see if I can remember them. Glial cells, oligodendrocytes, astrocytes, and neurons. Nice. All four of those cells had um, profound reductions in almost every gene involved in glucose metabolism. Wow. So, I mean, it was across the board. I, this is the kind of thing that rarely happens in human research. You rarely get such a, a delta, such a difference in, wow. in what you're seeing because humans are just so varied. However, with the ketone genes, we found a couple of the ketone genes compromised in the oligodendrocytes, but all the rest, the other three cells and indeed all the other genes, even in the oligodendrocytes, were totally normal in the ketone brains and the control brains. Just really providing significant and I would say foundational evidence and foundational because there's other evidence that, is already, that have already found that the brain in Alzheimer's is compromised in its glucose use but not its ketone use. We now have an explanation for that. So I would say we've gone one step deeper, so more foundational. But this is providing or strengthening this growing foundation and strengthening this growing paradigm shift in how we look at Alzheimer's disease. The traditional view has been that Alzheimer's disease is a result of plaque accumulation. You have these amyloid plaques in your brain, and that's why you have Alzheimer's. But that just hasn't held up. We have medications that actually attack or combat the plaques, and it doesn't help the Alzheimer's. The cognition is as compromised as ever. And yet we've known that you can take someone with Alzheimer's disease, put them into ketosis, and immediately detect cognitive improvements. And not to say we've cured the disease, but we've improved it, which for a disease like Alzheimer's disease is pretty significant. So our findings establish uh, or strengthen this, this paradigm shift that Alzheimer's disease is not a plaque disorder, it's a metabolic disorder, and the sooner we start to shift this, the earlier we're detecting the problem and the better we're treating it. Now, we're following that up with more studies, continuing to look at the efficacy or the therapeutic role of ketones in learning uh, learning and memory, and we're using rodent models to do this because you just can't do some of these things in humans, but we're also exploring the degree to which a type of fat 
called sphingolipids. So within every cell, there's multiple types of fats. The fat that we store is a is a, in the family of glycerolipid, triglycerides or glycerolipids. And then there's a whole other class of fats called sphingolipids, named after the mysterious sphinx because we, for so long, didn't know what they did. Hmm. We know more and more that sphingolipids are directly doing two things. Um, and this is what we're focusing on now, uh, among other projects, mind you looking how sphingolipids in the hippocampus are causing the hippocampus to become insulin resistant. And then once the hippocampus is insulin resistant, I suppose, I suspect that that is resulting in the reduction in glucose-related um, genes being from being expressed. And then second, sphingolipids directly alter the function of mitochondria. And so if mitochondria can't work, well, then the cell can't create energy because the mitochondria is making the bulk of that energy. Now, I realize, Ben, over the past few minutes, I've gotten very granular, very specific. And so for the sake of the audience appreciating what I'm talking about here, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, something they've heard me and, and you certainly speak to, there is a true benefit to ketones and and this benefit continues to grow the more we learn about the metabolic value of ketones the more the ketones just have an increasing value it's more encouragement to give your brain a break from glucose and let it eat ketones and then it's a second encouragement to help the body stay insulin sensitive because if you're insulin if you're insulin, insulin resistant in addition to the myriad cardiometabolic complications you're going to be suffering from or be at greater risk for, your brain is among the biggest casualties because its energy demand is so high in the hippocampus, at the very least, just with regards to memory and learning and other brain regions also become insulin resistant, like the hypothalamus, and that's relevant for appetite control. But if you want to keep your brain sharp, you got to keep that hippocampus insulin sensitive, and that is why that, that evidence is so strong that Alzheimer's disease is referred to as type 3 diabetes, or to put it better, insulin resistance of the brain. And so if someone's saying, well, how can I keep my brain insulin resistant? The simple response is keep your body insulin, or keep, how can I keep my brain insulin sensitive? Keep your body insulin sensitive. And the best way to do that is manage your macros and be smart about fasting. There's a lot of questions I have from what you just shared. That was super fascinating. So sphingolipid, is that how you say it? Mm -hmm. Yep. So uh, that's within our, our cells, uh, specifically fat cells? Also. Any cell. Any cell, okay. Yeah, in fact, in fact, Ben, in my book, I talk about a type of lipid called ceramides right. or ceramide 1-phosphate. That is like the mother of all sphingolipids. Got it. So ceramides are the basis upon which uh, it, that'll be the, the backbone that is modified to create all the other thousands of sphingolipids within cells. I want to take a quick break here to share with you about the dangers of taking fish oil. I know, shocking. I was somebody who took fish oil every single day for years. And then I came across a ton of research showing the dangers of consuming fish oil. I immediately found an amazing product called Pureform. Pureform is a plant-based omega. And the cool thing about Pureform is that it is uniquely processed with nitrogen to preserve it and make sure it does not oxidize. These essential fatty acids are cold pressed and you get the proper balance of omega-6 and omega-3 to feed your cells what it desires. We know that life begins and ends at the cell membrane. And when you have the proper fats, the building blocks for those cell membranes, all of a sudden your fat burning hormones 
can do its job. So you lose weight. All of a sudden, your cells produce energy, so you feel good. So we know that cellular health is key for performance and longevity. So I've been taking Pureform every single day. My dog takes it every single day. So does my girlfriend and my mom. This is how much I love the product. If you want to get your bottle delivered to your door, head over to purelifescience.com. Check them out. Order a bottle or two, and you'll be amazed by how you feel after taking this just after a few days. That is purelifescience.com. Use the coupon code BEN4 to apply a $4 off coupon. That is BEN, B-E-N, and the number four. International shipping is available. Okay, let's go back into this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. So... A person who has more fat, body fat, they'll have higher concentrations of these ceramides and sphingolipids? Yeah, probably just because the same environment that is, it's not that the fat cells are creating the sphingolipids. Each individual cell is creating its own. Each cell has its capacity to create its own sphingolipids. It's just that the same signals that are promoting fat growth in fat cells are going to, in some instances, promote sphingolipid development. Like, for example, in a published paper a couple of years ago that found elevated insulin promotes the accumulation and the, the synthesis of sphingolipids within cells. And this, at the same time, that elevated insulin is going to be promoting the growth of fat within fat cells. So it's not the fat cells themselves are promoting sphingolipid development, but it is the same kind of metabolic milieu or the metabolic environment is going to be promoting both. Got it. And then you were talking about the four receptor sites in the hippocampus, oligodendrite. Is that what the name of one of them was? Dendrocyte. Mm -hmm. Yep. So you mentioned that glucose, all four of them saw a decline with glucose, but you also mentioned that ketones, uh, you saw a decline in that specific receptor site. So the question is what actually could benefit that receptor site? That's, that's a great question. So the oligodendrocytes are interesting in that they create the myelin. Um, they're, they're the myelin aspect, which is in, which is involved in the rate at which signals are sent across a nerve, uh, I guess to put it at, at its simplest, yet very accurate description. Yeah. So the fact that ketone, that a, a few ketone genes were down in the oligodendrocytes, to be frank, I, I can't speak to the relevance of that. Why only the oligodendrocytes had a couple of the ketone genes down, whereas the other three cell types in the hippocampus didn't have any? I don't know. I don't know. Um, it is. It is interesting. I would say uh, that maybe this is what I'll say. It might reflect a, an overall reduction in energy. So the oligodendrocytes may be compromised in both glucose use, most definitely, and to some degree, even ketone use. So they may be really starving. But the genes, the ketone related genes that were down, they were down. It's not that they're off. And so all that what someone would think of would, is that we just created a bit of a bottleneck, but we didn't pinch it off altogether. Got it. Okay. When is that p- uh, paper going to be published or the you said manuscript? It's out. Okay. Where can we find it? Yeah. It's the Journal of Alzheimer's and Dementia. In fact, there's an NPR radio program called Science Friday. And last Friday, they highlighted, they interviewed me briefly for it. And so this has been making some headlines. So if someone just types in, Bickman, Alzheimer's, and then ketones, uh, I bet that'll come up as one of the top hits. And it, it is, I actually paid uh, more money to make it an open access article. Anyone who's been 
like an online sort of scientist of their own trying to do their own educating knows that very often you encounter a paywall. You see a manuscript, a scientific manuscript you want to access, but now you've got to pay a fee to access it. Well, I took down that wall for this manuscript. I deliberately paid extra when I got the manuscript published in that article, in that journal, so that it is open access. So anyone can go read it. That's terrific. Thank you for doing that. We'll grab that link. We'll put it in the podcast notes and the YouTube video notes. Awesome. I can't wait to dig more into that. And congrats on being on NPR. That's pretty big. Yeah, it was fun, actually. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's great. I can't wait to listen to it. Now, you mentioned a little while ago that you record one Instagram TV video per week, and I reminded you off, uh, offline that you got to record yours this week. So why don't we prep for that video by explaining today what what's on t- this week's agenda? What are you going to talk about this week? So lately, I've been talking a lot about fat cells. It's been a series, weeks, weeks of little videos about just about fat cells. By this time, I've already shared with people the fact that fat tissue, what we pinch and jiggle, fat tissue grows through two different ways. Hypertrophy, which is the number of fat cells is set, but each fat cell itself is getting bigger. That's a finite growth because once the fat cell has reached maximum dimension, the fat tissue stops growing. An alternative mechanism of growth is hyperplasia, where the fat cell gets a little big and then we just make another fat cell and then make another fat cell and it continues. Hyperplasia is essentially limitless fat growth. It can essentially continue to go forever. That's actually a healthier way to get fat. If you can grow fat cells through hyperplasia, they stay very insulin sensitive and the body stays insulin sensitive. In contrast, if you're growing fat through hypertrophy, the fat cell becomes insulin resistant to prevent it from growing any bigger, lest it burst, and so it becomes insulin resistant and then the body does too so that's just by way of background i think a video i'll share this time is that on the body most people most people get fat through hypertrophy that's the overwhelming number of individuals we get to adulthood and essentially the number of fat cells we have is set and so then any further fat growth is happening through hypertrophy however there is in fact one site on the body that continues in in most Women, I'll give that hint, it's in women. Women, much to their dismay, have a fat tissue site that is almost always hyperplastic. So it has an almost limitless potential to grow and get fat. This is why women are healthier and more insulin sensitive than men, despite always, almost always being fatter. I mean, women need to be fatter for fertility's sake. It's supposed to be that way. Um, but it's also because they can get fatter through hyperplasia rather than hypertrophy. And that site and Ben want to take a guess what yeah. site a woman what site do you think has almost limitless potential to grow well I know that the highest concentration of mitochondria in the body is in the ovaries and uh, I'm guessing that might be around there yes yeah, so it is it, well, it is in that area it's the the gluteo femoral fat so basically button hips ah got it so women on their on their rear and their hips makes sense that is the area where it's much more likely to be hyperplastic. So despite what I said earlier, which is typically when someone reaches adulthood, the number of fat cells is set. However, women and estrogen facilitates this actually, but that's a bit of a, maybe a confusing issue because estrogen itself is not actually a fattening hormone. Insulin tells the body, I'm sorry, estrogens tell the body where to store fat. 
And that includes this hyperplastic tendency of the butt and hip fat, the gluteofemoral fat. It's insulin that tells the body or the cells how much fat to store. That's why a woman who's eating a healthy diet isn't going to continue to get fatter and fatter at her butt and hips because it's estrogen that's telling those fat cells how to grow, but it's insulin's actually telling them to grow. Interesting. Okay. So it's kind of like a, a Sherpa estrogen is. So it tells the fat cells where to grow, similar to adiponectin telling where fat to be burned, right? It's like the opposite. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's right. Cool. That's interesting. You know, I had a book launch party uh, three days ago. I, I released my book, Keto Flex, which thank you so much for endorsing it. Pleasure. Amazing. I was delighted to be an early reader, frankly. I thought it was just so clever. Thank you, uh, Ben. I appreciate that. And I have a book being sent to you. You should get it this week, but you're actually right on the back right here author of Why We Get Sick, Not Why We Get Fat, <laughs> and your endorsement is there. So I want to say thank you. But oh, My pleasure. I was giving a, a lecture a few days ago at a, my book launch party, and I found it so fascinating doing research over the years. And I believe in God. I know that you do as well. And the way that God created us, it's so interesting because the cells that are more mitochondrial uh, that are more metabolically active are the cells that actually have the most mitochondria, right? The brain, you mentioned the eyeballs, the heart, the testicles, the ovaries. And I recently discovered that the ovaries actually have about 100,000 mitochondria in a single cell, which actually blew my mind. And it makes total sense because the ovaries, reproduction. The eyes, you know, focus and attention, the brain staying alert. So it's so fascinating. And I know, and I want to know from you, like, what are some of like the biggest discoveries that you've come across to just be blown away by this creation of the human being? Yeah. Oh, what a delightful question. I share your wonder and I, I do so unapologetically as a scientist. I am a rigorous scientist and there is a little part of me. I hate to get off topic. I promise I'll come back. <laughs> um, I There's a part of me that is very, frankly, a little worried when I see these declarations nowadays of I believe in science. That's what people are claiming, and they're proudly claiming this. We believe in science, and you see little yard signs. In this home, we believe in science and a bunch of other platitudes. I can't help but wonder at that. What a weird thing. Never believe in science. I, I, in fact, I'm telling everyone, never believe in science. That's nonsense. And I'm a scientist. What a scientist is doing, and anyone is also doing this, everyone should be doing this, and I think most people are, a scientist is a seeker of truth, and it is the never-ending pursuit to try to prove yourself wrong. So the moment you have an individual saying, we believe in science, or a scientist saying, you should believe in the science, no, you don't say that. What a profoundly scientific thing to say. The only thing a scientist should be saying is, the data suggests this. For now, that's what we're going to rely on uh, until we're proven wrong. And anything that invokes the word theory that can't be proven false is not a theory at all. It, that is, this is the scientific reasoning. So when I see people claiming we believe in science, I want to put up a yard sign. And again, pardon me for being so religious. Go, go I want to put up a yard sign and it says, in this home, we believe in Christ. You know, that's, that is the person in whom I have my faith. It is in the divine. It is not in an individual in a white lab coat because I'm one of those schmucks walking around in a white lab coat. And I'm so aware of what I don't know. It's disappointing. Anytime a scientist becomes too smug and they get caught up in their own success, I worry that they've simply they've stopped being a scientist and they've become nothing more than a shill. They've become a salesman. 
And we are seeing plenty of that, I guess, to, to put it very politely. So that's my view on, on science. Now, what have I seen in my never-ending pursuit to find truth in the physical realm, which is what a scientist is doing? In fact, to your point, one of the most shocking things I ever learned was a project that we've started collaborating on looking at kidney function, because that's, of course, very relevant in diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is the most common um, cause of kidney failure and blindness, actually, where you mentioned the eye and the metabolic demands of the eye. I have never seen a tissue with such a high metabolic demand as the kidney. It literally blows any other tissue out of the water. And this was something that was so stark when we were in my lab right across the hallway here, actually measuring the metabolic rate of two tissues at the same time, the heart and the kidney. And the heart has a very high metabolic rate, higher actually than the brain, which is high itself. But as we were measuring the metabolic rate of both of these tissues, heart and kidney, the kidney was burning through. I mean, we could see in real time, it was chewing through the oxygen. It, was, it had such a high metabolic demand. Of course, when you burn something, you use oxygen. The same goes in the mitochondria, which is why we say you're burning an energy source, you're burning fat, because you are using oxygen to do that. We could see the oxygen just plummeting in this kidney tissue, while the heart, which is like the next highest rate metabolic organ, was just barely, barely moving. The kidney was going so fast, we had to actually intervene and put in more oxygen so that the tissue wouldn't die. And so you look at just, maybe there's a, a moral here, but you look at the humble kidney and you think, how easy it is to just assume, well, the kidney's just filtering blood. What an easy, simple thing. Now, the kidney actually does much more than that, including regulating salt with hormones, responding to insulin and all that. But it is working so tirelessly behind the scenes. Indeed, cell for cell, working harder than any other cell in the body that I'm aware of to do its humble narrow-minded job of filtering the blood it has and, and that there's there's some wonderful physiological relevance there when someone is actually getting low on oxygen in their blood it's the kidney that sends the signal that we're getting low on oxygen because its demand for oxygen is so much orders of magnitude so times 10 times 100 times a thousand times higher than any other cell in the body that it is the first to sense the reduction in oxygen. And so it is the one that starts to send the signal to the bone marrow, hey, we need more red blood cells because we're getting low on red blood cells. Or it sends um, the signal around throughout the body, we need to retain more water so I'm going to start holding on more water because we need more blood because oxygen and blood is somehow compromised. So that humble little kidney doing its job is, and, and again, so tirelessly doing its job behind the scenes. It is an unsung hero of, of, of course, good health. Ask anyone who's undergoing dialysis on that. Not that the heart isn't relevant, not that the brain isn't relevant, but the heart and the brain are so appreciated you know we're always talking about the heart and the brain you know they get top billing on, on the movie poster and it's the kidney that's way down at the bottom who's just sort of thinking hey but what about me guys you know i need more oxygen than all of you i'm working a hundred or a thousand times harder than any of you are and yet i don't top billing so i don't know i mean maybe there's some moral there which is never overlook the value of of something some person Everybody has, has value, and when it comes to the body, every tissue, even the humble kidneys, are playing an absolutely essential role. 
That's so fascinating. Yeah, the, the humble kidney. That's incredible. So what are, the question now is this, because you've got my mind going here. What are three things that we do, probably the most detrimental things that we do to harm the kidney? And then what are the three best ways to support the kidney? That's a good question. I appreciate you sort of cooking that up on the fly. Let me try to find three. And I think any problem I state, the solution will be there. So that'll address the second part of what you're asking, which is what can you do? I would say first, stay hydrated. I'm not a kidney expert, so I'm I'm speculating a little here. Um, But I would say stay hydrated. That has got to be the best thing to do for your kidneys. Second, what would I say? You know, maybe this is a bit of a bizarre one, and I'm probably wrong in saying it, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's something I've been thinking of. Maybe learn how to breathe better to maximize blood flow through the body. And by that I mean learning how to become a little more CO2 tolerant. This is something I have been experimenting with and have long appreciated but now have more of a personal conviction. Um, But the, the value of breath holds where when you're holding your breath, There's this paradoxical response in the systemic circulation, so outside of the heart and lungs, especially the lungs, outside of the lungs because the lungs actually go opposite. But when you are holding your breath and your O2 is starting to get a little low and your CO2 is starting to get a little high, the systemic blood vessels will dilate considerably. In fact, I, including at the kidney. And so what a way to really just facilitate a rapid boost in blood flow. But next time someone is walking, I encourage someone, take a breath in through your nose, breathe out through your nose, and then hold your, plug your nose for just, well, as long as you comfortably can until you start to get very hungry for the next breath and you start to kind of have a little diaphragm spasm and then, of course, let go and breathe. So, I mean, don't push it too far. But the moment you let go and start breathing again, pay attention to how your legs feel because it is, I feel it every time. It is shocking how I, f- I can literally feel the blood flow expand through my legs. And this is actually something I've started kind of taking advantage of when I do leg day or when I'm doing my legs as part of my workout. I will move around and do a brief breath hold. And of course, in the midst of a workout, you can't hold for very long. And again, I wouldn't encourage anyone to try to hold it too long. I don't want anyone fainting and blaming me for it. But you can feel this dilation, you can feel your legs get flush with blood. You can imagine that happening all over. It's just more pronounced in the leg because you're walking and you're upright, and so gravity's naturally pulling it down a little better. But maybe that's a second one. Can you get the same effect as wearing a face mask? Um, that's a good question. Insofar as if the face mask is, in fact, limiting, you know what, Ben, probably... Probably, but then even then there's a cynical part of me that says, yeah, but now you're constantly breathing in a lot of CO2 rather than concentrating it to one moment. And so I might be saying that just because I'm so tired of face masks. (laughs) Yeah, I said it facetiously, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, good, good. Thanks. Okay, good. Good. Well, then I'll stop trying to justify it. Yeah, so no. The answer will be no then. (laughs) And then what's the the third one? What's the third one? Well, 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 I know that when you are eating a lot of carbohydrates, you're retaining more water. The kidneys are, you know, and when you actually go more keto, the kidneys dump all this excess water weight. So can that be something that could hurt it? That's great. Yep. Keep insulin low because if insulin is high, then insulin is forced aldosterone to be high and then aldosterone's telling the kidneys to hold on to all this stuff that we don't want to hold on to so lowering insulin will lower aldosterone this main hormone that wants the kidneys to keep everything in and, and now 
it can let it go. And so it is a wonderful kind of cleansing effect in a way, in, in, in fact, probably quite literally cleansing the body of these molecules that it's been holding on to. So yeah, the, I guess that would be the three. Stay hydrated, allow vasodilation, strategic vasodilation with brief breath holds from time to time, especially while you're moving. Um, and that will exp promote blood flow all over. And then third, lower the insulin to help the kidneys filter better. Great answers. And to your point, when you are eating high carb and then you start to do keto low carb, you're going to release this excess water weight, which is great because you'll look lighter and feel lighter, but the kidneys do release the, a lot of uh, electrolytes. So replenishing it with your tip number one is going to be even more important for somebody who's new to keto because of that electrolyte dumping process. So awesome, awesome answer. If you're anything like me, you probably spend some money each month on your supplements. But what if you're still tired and you just don't feel 100% well? Well, there could be a deficiency. What if there was a way to know if you were actually absorbing your supplementation or not absorbing and maybe you're taking too much of something? Well, what I'm bringing you today is a chance to accurately test all of that. In this case, I'm talking about upgraded formulas, upgraded hair test kit and consultation and once you uncover these hidden deficiencies, you could get rid of these symptoms you might be experiencing that might be affecting your thyroid, adrenals, or much more. Upgraded Formulas is a very cool company. I interviewed Barton Scott, who is the founder and chemical engineer who helps craft all their supplements, and they have this really cool upgraded mineral deficiency analysis. So say goodbye to blood and urine tests, which typically indicate short-term results, Hair is the best identifier, and you could get that hair from your head, armpit area, or even pubic area, and you'll receive a consultation with a member of Upgraded Formulas to help discuss your results. And it's very simple. Collect your hair sample, send it in, and get your results fast. We've worked out an exclusive deal, KetoCamp podcast listeners, to receive 10% off your order. Head to UpgradedFormulas.com, use the coupon code BEN10, at checkout to get your hair mineral kit and any other supplements that you could find on their website. That is upgradedformulas.com. Use the coupon code BEN10. I have a question that came to me. I mean, I'm not getting to any of the questions I had for you. Yeah, you're like, hey, this is the best kind of conversation. I know, you're right. <laughs> Has anybody ever died from diabetes? If you understand the question. Has anybody actually died from diabetes? I absolutely understand that question. And this is a relevant question because diabetes is considered the seventh leading cause of death. And I'm left looking at that and I'm wondering, so yes, I think strictly speaking, someone has died from diabetes, but it would almost, I, the only purely diabetes cause would be maybe one of two things. Um, well, in a narrow range of things, I guess, perhaps one would be diabetic ketoacidosis, so in instances of true insulin deficiency, but in fact, that's type one, that's not type two. Let's just stick yeah, with, so I'm with, with type, type one. Two. Yeah, let's stick with type two, which is the overwhelmingly the most common form of diabetes. So diabetic ketoacidosis is not really relevant, if at all, to type two. So one would perhaps be the non-ketotic coma. So if someone has massively high glucose levels, that puts such a burden on the kidneys and that the person starts leaking out, urinating out all that glucose and water with it, they become so hypovolemic, their blood volume goes so far down 
that they can't keep enough pressure because you need pressure to pump blood up to the brain so the person would go unconscious and then potentially die. If they had glucose levels that were in the high, high several hundreds for too long, too high for too long, they would be losing the glucose and the body water from the blood. Blood volume would come down. They would have become hypotensive to the point that their brain couldn't get enough blood. At first, you faint, which tries to solve the problem because then that puts you horizontal, and that mm. usually will increase blood flow, so it usually won't kill you. You'll just be faint or unconscious. But let's say that problem was not resolved. That would kill you. That is, however, extraordinarily uncommon. So what will usually kill the diabetic is heart disease, almost always. It will accelerate cancers, which is going to soon be number one because cancer cells eat glucose. They don't eat anything else. Any study anyone ever sees where it says, well, this liver cancer can use ketones, the response is always, but is that a human tumor? That is always the response. Anyone who hears a study, oh, well, this study found that cancer cells can use fat for fuel. This study found that cancer cells can use ketones for fuel. Nope. That, those are always, every time that's been stated, it's in a cell culture. You've taken a mutated cancer cell and put it into a mutated environment, which is growing a cell on a dish. And now who knows what the hell that cell is going to do. It's turned into something that didn't even ever exist in the human body. You, can, you always have to then just ask, but is that a human tumor? And the answer will always be no. There's no evidence that I'm aware of, and I'm aware of a lot of this evidence. There's no evidence I'm aware of that suggests that a, a human cancer cell can use anything but glucose. So back to my point, the diabetic is dying from heart disease. They're dying from cancer. They're dying from kidney failure. And those are all listed as distinct causes of death when it's not considered diabetes. So that's a, that's a problem. So most people who have diabetes will not die from it. And really the only pure death from diabetes would probably be that, that what's called a non-ketotic coma, which is just this, you've become, you've lost so much body water from your urine that you can't keep enough blood to pump up to the brain. Great answer. So it's the degeneration of the diabetes that leads to the actual deaths. Yep. So that's important to understand. And by the way, diabetes, well, type 2 diabetes, a lifestyle disease that can be reversed with lifestyle changes. So that's important to note for anybody who's going through that. And your book would be the probably the best resource to learn more about that. Uh, let's transition, Ben, into the first thing I wanted to speak about. <laughs> now we're getting it to the end. And that is, you had a great video on the Insulin IQ YouTube channel. I'm not sure if that's your actual, is that your actual mm -hmm. YouTube channel? Okay, so on your YouTube well, yeah, channel. I'm a co-founder co in that. So it's not mine, but it's a group of us. Got it. So on the Insulin IQ YouTube channel, great channel. We'll link it down below. Salt and insulin sensitivity. What's the link there? Yeah, it actually has a very interesting bi-directional relationship. So I already mentioned the obvious relationship, and this explains why almost everyone with type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance, because that's the same thing, also has hypertension. In fact, to say that another way, Almost everyone with hypertension has it because they're insulin resistant. The elevated insulin that, that happens with insulin resistance is pushing aldosterone to be up. And when aldosterone's up, it's forcing the kidney to hold on to more salt and water. So more water means higher blood volume. Higher volume means higher pressure. So that's the obvious sequence of events with high insulin promoting the hypertension and the salt retention. The opposite actually is relevant as well. If you, this has been done in actual clinical studies. If you restrict salt, the body becomes so determined to hold on to any salt that it can, that it will make the body insulin resistant. 
because it will become insulin resistant, which pushes up the insulin. And now you've pushed up the aldosterone um, in an effort to try to resolve the salt restriction. So there are, is honest to goodness human clinical studies where they cause insulin resistance by doing nothing more than restricting their salt. Wow. And you think about this in the context of modern dietary advice, which is the, the overweight hypertensive comes into the doctor's office and the doctor with the best of intentions will say, you need to cut your salt. Although the evidence suggesting that salt restriction improves blood pressure is profoundly weak. It is profoundly weak. And there are so many confounding variables that have led to even to that very weak conclusion. But nevertheless, the physician thinking he or she's doing a favor to the patient will say, you need to really cut your salt. But then the irony is by telling them to cut their salt, you're actually perhaps compounding, you're exacerbating the insulin resistance. And so all you're doing is creating this vicious cycle, never actually solving the problem. Mm. Not to mention they tell them to lower their fat and increase their carbs too. They do. Yep. And carbs are a wonderful way to retain water. In fact, I can almost, without exception, wake up in the morning and know whether I had indulged in too much carbs the night before, because when I will take off my sleep tracker ring, usually if I've, had, if I've been low carb and smart or fasted throughout the evening, my little sleep tracker ring, I'll be able to slip it right off, no problem. If I've indulged in carbs that night before, nope, uh, every time it'll be a tug, a bit of a tug, 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 and then I'll get the ring off to charge it, you know, while I'm brushing my teeth or whatever. So yeah, we've long known, this is over a hundred years, we've known of the water retaining effect of carbohydrates. If someone wants to get water in their body, just eat some carbs that will spike insulin and insulin will tell the kidneys to hold on to salt and water. Mm. When you have carbs, what do you have typically? Yeah, so it, it kind of depends. Usually, if, if I'm being good about it, it will maybe be just some starchy vegetables. That'll be the bulk of the carbs. Well, when I'm really good, it's just leafy greens and berries. And then when I'm not as good, it'll be starchy carbs. When I'm not good at all, it'll be when I've kind of had a, a breakdown in any given evening. And now I ate a bowl of cereal or I had some toast. And that certainly happens. But the problem, and, and someone listening would think, oh, my goodness, Ben, that's nothing. And it isn't in the grand scheme of things. But the further I go on that spectrum, the harder it gets for me to stop. So it, we very rarely will have cereal in the house. And even when we do, because I, daddy can't handle it, I'm really. And I want to do my kids a favor. I don't want my kids to be raised in a culture where that crappy bowl of is looked at as something that is acceptable as a breakfast. It's just not a part of our family culture. Thank heavens. We started young enough that my kids don't really know what they're missing. But very rarely we will have cereal. I can't even start, Ben. If I have one bowl of cereal, honest to goodness, it'll turn into three or four bowls before I even know it. Mm. I will have eaten myself sick. And if we have bread in the house and I'm going to say, oh, I'm just going to have two pieces of toast, that's nothing. It'll turn into four or six pieces of toast before I know it. And so now this is touching on a, a different point now. So those are the carbs um, uh, that I eat on that spectrum, usually on, on the better end of that spectrum, thankfully. But it's because I've learned that I am an abstainer. I'm not a moderator. And if and that's an overly simplified way of breaking people up into two groups when it comes to, and there's enough dividing into groups, but let's just do it for the sake of this discussion. When it comes to nutrition, my wife is a moderator. 
we can have a pint of Ben and Jerry's, Ben, and she'll open that pint. She'll take a couple little demure little bites of that pint and then enjoy it, lick her lips, put the lid back on and put it back in the freezer and be done. I cannot do that. I, I, in fact, I will look at her and she puts the lid on and puts it back and I'll just be wondering and I'll be thinking, what, what's, who are you? You know, what is, are you a human? Like what race of, what race of, of woman are you? Um, how have you done this? How have you done this? Because the moment that lid comes off and I take the first bite, Ben, I don't stop until the whole damn thing's gone. I just, I, mean, I would say I can't, but I hate the, I, I hate how weak willed that sounds. It would take a Herculean effort for me to stop. I only stop when I'm done what I've indulged in or I've, I've so overindulged that I feel sick. Mm. Now, someone's looking at me and you're thinking, oh, yeah, but Ben, you're lean. So this clearly isn't a problem. It is. I've just learned. I've learned that for me to quote, I think, St. Thomas Aquinas, abstinence is easier than perfect moderation. Mm. I find that it is better for me to never start. It is better for me to look at that pint of Ben and Jerry's in the grocery store and know that it's, I'm stronger in that moment than I am the moment the lid comes off or the moment I've put that first bite in my mouth. Easier for me to never even put that first piece of toast of bread in the toaster than it is to stop at eating two pieces of toast. My wife isn't that way. She can stop. She can eat one piece of toast and be done. I'm not wired that way. And so if I've been able to maintain any degree of good metabolic health, and I think I have, it's because I've been so honest with myself, acknowledging my habits and my tendencies and maybe, dare I say, even addictions, that I've been able to control them um, at moments before they control me. And Ben, there's such a lesson there. People look at at licentiousness. Nowadays, people confuse liberty or the freedom to do something with the the almost encouragement to do whatever you want. Um, and so I'm a very moral person, or rather, I adhere to very traditional moral values. And that includes the consumption of substances that I know can be addictive in some people. And so someone would say, like the true libertarian or the true liberty-minded individual would say, heroin should not be a regulated substance. It, we shouldn't involve that. Anyone who wants to do heroin should be able to do heroin. I look at that and say, but once someone has done heroin, they have lost their freedom. You know what I mean? There's a loss yes. of liberty because of addiction. And so, in fact, if I were to distill my dietary habits and maybe even my lifestyle habits to a bigger sense, one of the maxims that I would be left with among very, very few would be I want to do anything I can to avoid addictions, whether it is an emotional addiction to anger, whether it is a food addiction to salty, crunchy or gooey, sweet, gooey foods, or whether it is maybe dare I say a spiritual addiction, pornography, there are these things that once you are enslaved, you have lost your freedom. I don't want to lose my freedom. And so it's it's this kind of oxymoron or this paradox that those of us who ad adhere to morals or rules, someone would say, ah, oh, well, you're a slave to your rules. And I'll say, no, these rules allow me to be free. I'm willingly adhering to this rule rather than unwillingly giving up my freedom to an addiction. Mm, that's a powerful share, Ben. Just, do you think that when you start to open up that Ben and Jerry's and you take a bite, do you think a part of you wants to finish it so you just get it over with and go back to abstinence mode? Is that what's happening? Do you think so? Or it's just you just can't you just it's just like an unconscious thing that's happening? No, you know, there may be. I, I don't know. It, it is it is unconscious to the point that 
I have to say it's unconscious because it's not something I've ever truly been able to take out of me and, and analyze well enough to make it conscious. I do think that there are, when it comes to addictions, and this may qualify in this instance or not, the person is so eager for that that outcome that even though they know they will regret it, they don't care in the moment. They want it anyway. That is the true burden someone has to overcome when it comes to overcoming addictions. It's that they have to get to the point where they can temper their desire for that brief outcome with the certain knowledge that they will regret it. They have to look at what they're about to do and they say, I know this will feel good, but I know that my remorse will be greater than that temporary indulgence, that temporary pleasure. But that is the challenge of an addiction. Uh, and I certainly feel that with my own addictions and everyone has their unique addictions. There are some that I think are more common across the population than others. And it's more than just food, of course. But nevertheless, I don't know, Ben. I don't know that I've, I've been able to consciously scrutinize that behavior, which is, you know what, I'm just going to rip into this and get it done with. Or rather, it's I just want it all because I, I enjoy it so much I don't want to stop. I don't know. Well, we're out of time, and you have your office hours coming up here. So where's the best place to go check you out? For sure, get your book, Why We Get Sick. We'll drop it down below. But where else can the audience, the keto campers, go check you out, Ben? Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. What a wonderful conversation this was. I mean it. It's so fun to be able to sometimes get off the scientific rails and talk about something else because I'm not just science, so it's kind of fun to get off on these topics. And thanks for letting me get off on the topics. Of course. Thank you. So, yeah, my book is all about this kind of stuff. I regularly contribute blog content. So the video content with Insulin IQ you mentioned, um, I have a low-carb meal replacement shake that I created with a couple of my brothers, and people can find more about that at Get Health, and health is spelled H-L-T-H, gethealth.com. And I have blog and, and vlog content there. And then really Instagram. That's really the main platform I use. So I would encourage people to find me there. Ben Bickman, and no C in Bickman, just B-I-K-M-A-N, Ben Bickman, PhD. And as we've discussed, it's usually just brief little snippets of some metabolic insight, just some idea into how the human metabolic machinery is working. Awesome. We'll put all that down below. Go check out Dr. Bickman. I want to acknowledge you for the amazing work that you do. I uh, had a really, uh, this was one of our best conversations, I think, because we got off the track here and we went into some different rabbit holes. So I appreciate you, Dr. Bickman. Thank you for endorsing my book, Keto Flex, and just keep doing what you're doing. I support you and everything that you're doing in this world. Ditto. Thanks so much, Ben. This was great. I hope you enjoyed that amazing conversation with Dr. Benjamin Bickman. Share this with a friend, text it to them, post it on your social media. Let's get the word out. This was such an amazing conversation with Dr. Benjamin Bickman. Go get his books. Go check them out. We're going to put all of his resources and information down in the podcast notes below. And as a reminder, we have our seven-day keto challenge coming up. Dr. Bickman is one of the featured speakers. This is 100% free, and you could get access right now by heading to ketocampchallenge.com. We're going to have free giveaways, two live trainings every single day, and it's going to be seven days worth of keto and fasting information that you've never come across before. Ketocampchallenge.com. Get your spot signed up right now, and it's 100% free. 
Also, leave the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. Follow me on Instagram and Clubhouse at the Benazadi. Have an amazing day. And I also want to let you know our next episode is with another master of the metabolism, Dr. Ken Berry. That'll come up in a few days. We're going to bring him back to the show for the third time as well. So stay tuned for that. And you'll hear me on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.